0: The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Welcome to this Farm Advisory Service Podcast and today we're talking about um, the journey in agriculture to carbon net zero and particularly thinking about our cropping systems in that So I'm Fiona Burnett, um, Head of Knowledge Exchange and Impact at Scotland's Rural College, and I'm joined today um, by Professor Bob Rees, who's Professor of Agriculture and Climate Change at SRUC, and Julian Bell, who's Principal Consultant Specialising in Carbon Calculation. So we're just going to have a think about some of the key issues um, in getting uh, arable systems in particular um, to carbon net zero. So, Bob, maybe starting with you, and it's probably helpful to start with the absolute basics. So when we say carbon net zero, we're not, of course, thinking just of carbon. We're thinking of those other greenhouse gases, so methane and and nitrous oxide. So can you just say a little bit about their relative importance in agriculture and particularly, you know, in the crop sectors?
1: Sure. Yes. And hello. Um, So.
0: Farming systems are quite complex
1: in many ways, particularly when we come to thinking about carbon. Um, And we hear a lot about net zero in the news and uh, from government uh, policy advisors. And the concept of net zero in the context of agriculture is quite difficult to get your head around. So agricultural systems emit greenhouse gases, but they also take them up. And the concept of net zero means that we need to balance the emissions with the uptake to get to a point where there are no net emissions. So the emissions come from nitrous oxide, from fertilizers, and nitrogen use, but also from methane, from livestock systems. Um, and then the uptake comes from the removal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere by crops, vegetation and forests. So when we get to net zero, those emissions of nitrous oxide and methane are balanced by uptake from the forests, grasslands and so on. Um, and that carbon is stored in the soil. Now, the policy of net zero doesn't necessarily require each individual farm to get to a net zero position. It refers to the country as a whole. But farming can certainly make a contribution to this.
0: Thanks, Bob. And actually, there's maybe a small point there about the, so locking up carbon is helpful in a long-term situation in trees or soil, but sometimes people wonder why, for example, straw doesn't count. So is that because that's locking up carbon in much too short a form?
1: That's right, yeah. So there's there's a time issue here. So um, biological systems actually deal with large flows of carbon Um, So you have a lot of carbon going into a farming system every year, but most of that flows straight back out again. So in the case of straw, for example, uh, a cereal crop will suck in lots of carbon while it grows. And then when we plough the residues in, that carbon is lost back into the atmosphere. So on an annual basis, most of the carbon that goes in goes out again. And for accounting purposes, we only count carbon sequestration over a longer period. We're looking for sort of storage over decades or centuries, really, if if we're going to account for carbon sequestration.
0: Interesting, and Julian, when you're working with farms to, um, you know, baseline their their carbon and and work out their carbon footprint, I mean, how would a farm set about doing that and working out what their own carbon footprint
2: is? Yeah, so I think when we're asking about farmers and what they what they might do to to, to start monitoring measuring their carbon footprint. It's worth just understanding you know, what the motivation might be. So there are clearly um, some government schemes out there that have been encouraging farmers to, to, to reduce carbon, and that seems set to grow. There are some of the buyers and users that are interested in this and are sort of nudging the farmers towards it. And there's also another area that we find has always been useful, which is helping farmers look at, their resource flows efficiency of their farm and help to identify you know, areas where that can be improved. And essentially, at the moment, although there may be, well be financial incentives potentially coming, the main motivation at the moment on the table for most arable farmers is simply to find better ways of doing what they're doing and reducing waste. And we find that yeah, that that is quite a good motivation in it. So mm-hmm. in itself.
0: So what are the things that you find make the biggest difference to their carbon footprint? If they, you know, what gets highlighted when they do a an on farm
2: plan? Well, For most arable crops, the the big things are, fer- fertiliser and fuel, and so. Now, fertiliser, it, but it's not that we shouldn't forget that uh, fertilisers are very effective. Input uh, and used efficiently, you know, it's for for conventional farmers. Then obviously they will try and optimise uh, the amount of fertiliser and get the most output from that. So it can, on a well-run arable business, this can be quite difficult to to to, def- to necessarily pull that nitrogen use down. However, it's it has immediate cost savings, and. It's it's a very large impact on climate change um, effects. So, so nutrient sampling, um, budgeting of nutrients, uh, different cropping patterns, and also you know the use of organic manures, whether it's things like compost or straw for muck, those kind of deals with neighbours. These can all help um, to start to reduce those fertiliser requirements.
0: And what's the kind of range on a farm? I mean, in terms of, are some with carbon footprints that are twice other farms? Is there a kind of range that you could put on the carbon footprint of arable farms? Or is it as long as a bit of string?
1: Well, I could maybe come in there because we've actually looked at that Mm. um, in a group of farms in the southeast of England all growing wheat in apparently the same way using apparently the same amount of fertiliser. And the carbon Mm -hmm. footprint varied by about threefold. Um, And it was interesting because the carbon footprint of the better performing farms per unit of product was better than those of the poorer performing farms. In other words, if you're using the same amount of nitrogen and getting a lower yield, you're going to have a high carbon footprint. So it really sort of reinforces what Julian was saying, that... You think, need to think about efficiency in order to get your carbon footprint down.
0: Yes, so that idea of these sort of, perhaps these are the easier wins, the fertiliser efficiency. I mean, are there other things that you would highlight there, Bob, as being the, the kind of key things, the major things that we need to, to look at to get closer to net zero?
1: Yeah. so I mean, yeah. As, as Julian was saying, the first thing you would do would be to look at efficiency. But we've also been working with government advisors to look at how government can get towards these net zero targets in agriculture, because agriculture is quite a significant source of emissions. Um, So on an arable farm where you don't have livestock, you don't have to worry about the methane, um, because methane really only comes from livestock. So we're focusing almost entirely on nitrous oxide emissions. Um, So there are a lot of new approaches that are being developed to help with this, Um, we have um, various inhibitors that can be used with fertilizers to cut the emissions that are associated with um, nitrous oxide emissions. Um, We can use better crop varieties that have more efficient use of the nitrogen that we apply. You also need to think about sort of wider environment within which you're farming so um, things like soil pH, soil structure, soil quality, getting all those things right will optimize the extent to which you can make use of the nitrogen that you're putting in. And then the other thing that you could do would be to think about getting alternative sources of nitrogen from mineral fertilizers so the big option there is to use biologically fixed nitrogen that comes from legumes um, and legumes exist in pastures in the form of clovers and alfalfa and things, um, but in um, arable systems we have grain legumes. So bringing those into a rotation um, puts nitrogen directly into that phase of the rotation within which they're grown, but it also carries over in, into other parts of the crop rotation. And they don't have to be grown as sole crops, they can be grown um, as intercrops or cover crops between cropping phases of the cropping system so that that's quite an attractive option and and it should reduce input costs as well
0: yeah and legumes come up particularly in the scottish context it seems such an obvious thing to do but actually you know can be quite challenging um in our rotations so i mean are you anticipating that that you know the growing of legumes will become much more widespread
1: Well um, it's certainly something supported by Scottish government. Um, I mean if if you look back in sort of longer term 50 to 100 years I mean historically we have had far more legume input into our rotations than we have now. I mean they've largely disappeared and there are a range of reasons for that. I mean there's international trade is a part of that as well um, and profitability but I think because we're starting to recognise the wider benefits of legumes in and systems, these are likely to return for a variety of reasons.
0: And, Julian, I mean, these kind of efficiency gains are, you know, perhaps the more attractive things to go at, the obvious things to start with. But, I mean, how far on the road to net zero will we get before we have to start thinking of other measures and perhaps some of the trickier things? And carbon sequestration comes up often in conversations with farmers. So is this going to have to be about tree planting, um, carbon in soils and things as well?
1: So, I mean, I think one of the things to say is that we're never going to get to completely zero emissions in agriculture. There are always going to be residual emissions from agricultural systems because we're dealing with a biological process. And the emissions that we get from the turnover of nutrients in soils, for example, is entirely natural um, and that's associated with these emissions. And that's recognised, I think, in, in the plans that we have for net zero, because agriculture is going to be allowed to carry on emitting greenhouse gases because of the essential nature of needing to produce food and the recognition that we're always going to have some emissions. But it's we can probably get them down by at least a third. Um, through the measures that we've been talking about today Um, and that residual then will have to be offset by greenhouse gas removals and as you say carbon sequestration is one of these. There are a whole range of other options as well Um, so biomass energy carbon capture and storage is very popular in policy at the moment and the idea there is that you grow trees or short rotation um, biomass crops use those crops to suck the carbon out of the atmosphere Um, you then burn them to produce energy and you store the carbon that's created in an underground reservoir so you're creating energy and removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere at the same time so it's quite an attractive option the problem is the technology is is quite um, in an early stage of development so there's a lot of
0: work to do there. Mm -hmm. That sounds very much like having your cake and eating it. But (laughs) we would be, yes, two wins there. And Julian, is there anything there about carbon markets? Or I know in speaking to farmers, they're actually quite nervous of the idea they might sell away some of the potential benefits around um, sequestering carbon on farms. Is that something you would, you know, be tentative about the idea of trading carbon?
2: I, I would certainly be a bit cautious. I think Bob's right in terms of, you know, this pressure on net zero is coming from all sides, but what does it, you know, what does it actually mean on the farm and what farmers actually got to do? So today, um, you know, they're not actually being pressured to do anything. I mean, that's just be clear. Um, so... The pressure is growing, but they're not incentivized to do it. So that will come through various mechanisms, which are not absolutely clear at the moment. So from an individual farmer, when we talk to different businesses, you know, we've, we've talked through a range of things that farmers can do. Now, what are they actually going to do? They'll do things if it saves them money or has some other benefit to the agronomy of the crop. And there are quite a few examples of that. So the farmers are very interested in those. They are interested in things that um, will take them further in terms of carbon reduction, but if they've got a net cost, then you know they're interested in them, but they're not going to do them at the moment. And you know, and again, when you start talking about carbon credits, you know, the farmers may need those uh, if there are such things, and if they can sell something now for cash. You know, that does have some attraction, but what are they actually selling? And do they actually have, is it something they have the right to sell? Um, is it, um, you know, will they, will they need what they're actually selling? And it's just way too early. And also it's worth bearing in mind that the, the value of carbon credits is only going to increase. So it makes little sense to sell um. Even nominally, your whatever carbon credits you might have, if you have any, at this stage. So, so I would say it's way too early to to be seriously selling, you know, carbon credits on an arable farm at this stage.
0: Yeah, no, it's just one of these interesting concepts. But yeah, I share your nervousness there. And one of the other things that's come up a few times this year, maybe putting this one to you, Bob, is you know, there was data in Australia about the potential to store carbon in soils. And again, you know, that could be something that that farming does. But actually, knowing that um, Scottish soils are relatively high in carbon, is that, you know, something that we are going to be able to increase much? Or is, in fact, you know, are we fairly maxed out in terms of carbon in our soils?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I suppose the first thing to say is that getting more carbon into soils is almost always a good thing, regardless of whether you're interested in climate change mitigation or not, because soil carbon has such an important impact on soil quality. It's a really good thing to have in soils, and the more we can get in, the better. But having said that, the caveat is that, as you say, Scottish soils have got one of the richest sources of soil carbon of any soils in many parts of the world. I mean if you look at the map of Europe you can see Scotland standing out as having high soil carbon. Um, So getting more carbon into our soils is quite difficult. That said, I mean there are always circumstances in which individual locations can take opportunities to increase soil carbon in places where there's been some soil degradation, um, perhaps where there's been very long-term arable production through sort of deep tillage and so on, there are sometimes opportunities to get a little bit more carbon into those soils, Um, but I think we shouldn't overestimate the opportunities for carbon sequestration um, in arable soils, it's probably other land uses like the creation of small areas of woodland on on farms or Um, restoration of peatlands or creation of woodlands elsewhere that are likely to be the big offsetting opportunities.
0: So this seems like an example going back to Julian's point that farmers will do things where there are other benefits. Having more carbon in your soil is beneficial um, in and of itself rather than used as a carbon storage measure. And you know Julian Maybe thinking of the markets again, but it would be a nice idea if there were premiums attached to, you know, um, carbon friendly farming. So, you know, are there any sort of market opportunities here? Um, You've talked about the efficiency gains, so maybe that's, you know, where, where the money sits on this. But are there premiums and benefits available?
2: That's a $64 million question, which you know, we were involved with a range of sort of serial groups, producer groups that are in active discussions with their buyers. Uh, the processors for your uh we've got one group in particular, they supply low quality, or sort of low they're pretty good efficient producers, so they're confident they can b- provide grain at sort of lower carbon than maybe other sources to their main buyer. And uh, the buyer's got a sort of global strategy to cut carbon. They've got these statements out there to cut carbon and obviously a clear point is to start sourcing grain that's got lower carbon. Now, at the moment, uh, they're just in a pilot stage, and the question is, will will that buyer pay uh, any more per, per, per tonne of grain for, for that grain? And that's an open question at the moment. So the group, they're fairly confident that they will actually find some efficiency gains themselves, so they're focusing on that at the moment. But we've we have looked at individual farms. And we've looked at a range of things the farmer could do. We've looked at the net cost to the farmer, the net t- cost per tonne of grain. Uh, and interesting, we've looked at the per the per tonne of carbon saved. And you end up with a little table for the farm, and you know you might have three or four things on it, and some things are more or less cost neutral. Um, it's quite interesting, even though you you know. Things like, um, you think, well, surely some will have negative costs. And they may have in the longer term, but even in the short term, even if it's better sampling and nutrient analysis and things like that, there's actually a bit of a cost to get started, maybe more, more testing needing done, more time, or even more um, split applications of fertilizer and things like that. So it, even those sort of things, although they will save money over time, there is a bit of a startup cost to just business as usual but some are of more or less zero cost. Um, but then some have actually got, you know, two or three pound a tonne of, of of grain cost, um, which is quite significant when the premiums are, you know, it can be hovering in sort of, you know, single figures, low low teams for some of the, the products. So actually, will the buyer pay, pay more? They, they, they don't actually know yet if that's going to happen. And when you look at the cost per tonne of carbon saved, some things are quite surprising. So for instance... <laughs> We looked at switching beans in for, what, for winter oats, uh, because it would obviously cut the nitrogen use of the falling wheat crop and various other things. So that was really good. But the cost was insane. It was like a £1,000 per tonne of carbon saved, because they had to forego actually quite a profitable oat milling crop in the process. Now, that's not insurmountable if the premium for homegrown protein were to increase. Uh, you could get to a point where that would all make sense. But just at the moment, you know, once everyone's done, there's something, oh, okay, well, that, that's not for us at the moment. Um, but I think what, what that whole exercise told us is it's getting from targets to cut carbon and sort of banner headlines and things, to actually delivering them is going to be a lot tougher because mm-hmm. there are choices, there's costs, there's time going to be spent um some people can't make they may, may not make this this the changes that they, ca- that they have to make some people will use that to their advantage um so it's it's a competitive area and um you know it's 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 going to be you know it's it's not going to be mm-hmm. easy for everyone by any means
0: mm-hmm. no but that's probably key bit is identifying the bits that consumers or markets will pay for I mean, it's a great idea that consumers are wanting more sustainably produced produce. Um, the who pays is, as you say, the, sadly not the million dollar question.
1: I feel like I could maybe add to that. Um, I mean, I think this issue of finance is really important. And one of the things that's holding back um, the flow of finance into agriculture is the monitoring, reporting and verification of emissions. This has proved very difficult in agriculture because we're dealing with large numbers of sort of low levels of emission in very complex systems there's a lot of interest in developing this and the financial institutions are keen to invest in agriculture if that monitoring reporting and verification is in place and i think you know over time this will come and We've talked to a number of financial institutions that are very keen to put significant quantities of money into agriculture to reduce its carbon emissions, because they're looking for places where they can buy carbon credits. So that'll happen. I mean, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but it's it's something that's going to develop. But of course, the other way in which finance is going to flow into agriculture is through government. I mean, agriculture is a subsidised sector and the, the policies around net zero are developing pretty fast. So where there are um, needs to increase um, funding to support mitigation, I'm pretty sure that the government will be thinking about directing funding to those sort of areas. So the Scottish Government are developing a new climate change plan that they're going to publish next year, and we can expect to see more funding being directed towards low carbon emissions in farming.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, Bob. And I was going to get on to policy, obviously with COP26 coming to Glasgow, thoughts are very much on what governments will do. So, I mean, that's given us a couple of highlights. Is there anything else that you anticipate, particularly Scottish policy, might move towards? I think soil testing is one example where we're expecting that to be encouraged. So I don't know if you can expand on that.
1: Well, I I mean, I guess the big issue with COP26 is that the world's attention is going to be focused on Scotland and climate change. So I think it's really important that we um, as a farming community have a very firm plan as to how we're going to reduce our emissions and and what our targets are. So, as I say, that's being developed at the moment and these discussions are a really important part of that. But of course, there's lots more that we can do. And I think Yeah, the other thing that we haven't really mentioned is new technologies. There's a lot of technology out there that's likely to help. um, And the sort of information technologies that are becoming available, the improved understanding we have of spatial variability in our landscape is gonna be really important. So we've been working, for instance, on um, surveys of fields and landscapes using drones and satellites to help improve that spatial heterogeneity Uh, understanding of spatial heterogeneity and then link that to variable rate fertiliser applications so you know we only apply fertiliser where we get the best response and places where we get poorer responses we can lower the application because historically we've treated fields as being uniform areas which we know they're not but we've never really had the understanding to do anything different but I think that's going to change and, and that will be um, a real step change in our ability to improve efficiency.
0: Yeah, no, that's, I, I know even some of the best managed farms, you know, the range across a field is is huge. So the idea, yeah, that we treat them as one homogenous block when we know they're not just seems such an obvious, obvious fix.
2: Uh, just on that, what's actually come out quite strongly in, well, cereals and potatoes is that, it's Very hard for farmers not to put on a wee bit extra, but partly because of the reasons you said they're not necessarily got, um, they can be overconfident that they that they're um, that the average across the field they're going to have problems if they if they cut it back too much. But not only is that a little bit extra, even if it's 10 extra nitrogen, not only is it um, obviously wasted resource cost and carbon, it can actually be de- deleterious to the crop itself. Um, and I know our work, colleagues work with potatoes that they actually see a yield loss if you push over the, the optimum for the crop and again with cereals you can have issues with the grain quality and um, you know even its uh, resilience and things in, in, in wet conditions and things like that so and the only way you can do you can really cut it back to the absolute what it needs is, is through that spatial you know knowledge and, and good sampling um, but in practical terms most farmers it's it's cheaper just to put on a wee bit extra everywhere because then, in theory, they're not worrying about uh, not putting on enough, but it does actually prevent them from quite a lot of benefits.
0: Yeah, so that's really interesting in terms of the innovations that that precision piece is going to be one of the the key pieces. And Julian, earlier this year, we were both working with some of the Scottish farmer-led groups that were looking at net zero. And so particularly, I'm thinking of the group that worked on the arable and horticulture sector but the output of that group was that they very explicitly linked um, net zero with um, other sustainability measures so particularly biodiversity so I mean do you think that's going to be an opportunity or challenging and you know maybe thinking of some of Scotland's key sectors like um, you know spring barley uh, and the whiskey sector is that you know an area that you know, brings, I'm sure it brings both challenges and opportunities.
2: I think this is a crucial thing that the whole debate, that it's not one dimensional because, you know, carbon, you know, it's got an overriding emphasis at the moment because we've got to obviously try and get some progress there. But we've clearly got major um, problems around locally and around the world with biodiversity. When it comes to the individual farm, they're all in sort of different positions, Some might uh it might be easier for some to make sort of bigger cuts in carbon or to improve sequestration. Others might have limited ability there, but might might be able to improve biodiversity. So so I think the options need to be there to allow farmers to to provide uh the things that, that they can to their best of their farm's ability and that the society wants. So so I think there's definitely gonna have to be, you know, a, a way found at those two different sort of objectives can can work together on different forms
0: yeah No. And back to your opening points bob about it being a biological system where we can't separate net zero from biodiversity
1: but i think the other thing to mention here is adaptation so you know we have quite a bit of climate change already baked into the system and we're going to see further climate change happening in the next few decades so as well as reducing their greenhouse gas emissions, farmers need to think about how to prepare for the changing climate. We're seeing that all around us at the moment. We're seeing changes in the distribution of rainfall, uh, temperature, and that will provide opportunities for growing new crops, but it also provides challenges in terms of managing water, both in terms of drought um, and excess rainfall. So um, that needs to go hand in hand with these mitigation considerations
2: that we've been talking about. Interestingly, this adaptation to the climate change, it's not actually just about the, it's not actually just about the weather, it's about the, the economic market environment. Yeah. And like, who on earth would have thought that the fact we had an amazing summer uh, with almost no wind would be a major contributor to the fact that fertilizer prices have gone through the roof? And that we almost stopped or we, we have almost stopped some of our, our livestock slaughter slaughterhouses because of lack of CO2, which are incredibly ramifications for arable farmers. And, you know, OK, it's on the back of all sorts of other things going around the world. But the drive to renewable energy, you know, climate, massive changes in the fluctuations in the weather. So I think Bob's absolutely right. Farmers have got to start adapting to the climate. It's not just the climate, there's the whole environment, the market as well. As I say, shifts in the weather affected renewable energy production, which affected fertiliser prices, which affected even the amount of CO2 available for the slaughter of animals. Again, huge implications for farmers. Um, and you know these these ripple effects are going to become stronger and stronger over the next few years. So farm businesses have got to, you know, try and be more resilient to both the weather and what's happening around about them, but also look for opportunities. Um, you know, for instance, what's quite obvious now in Scotland is there's not enough solar power because there's a huge reliance on wind. But in the summer, you get another dry, uh, quiet spell. We actually got very little else uh, way of producing energy. So um, th- there are storage, you know, to have ample storage, is pays really well in um, in years of big fluctuations. And we'll possibly see that. We'll see bigger, some years of grey crops around the world, but we'll probably get more and more problems. So a lot of opportunities as well as actual risks to the farmer.
0: No, and that's probably a really good point to start winding up this um, crop cast, Julian. But that, I mean, those very real examples of how vulnerable agriculture is to the climate, that climate change is, is very real and and the purpose that we're talking about getting to net zero. So maybe just to finish off with a few kind of final thoughts from both of you, is there anything in particular you'd you know, want to leave as a take-home message here, Bob?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are very confused about where to start with this process of net zero. And I think the advice I would give would be to start with a carbon audit. Um, So we have a great carbon footprinting tool in SRUC, uh, AgriCalc, although other options are available. Um, But I think trying to understand where you are in terms of your baseline is a really important starting point to getting emissions down. And something like AgriCalc can benchmark you against other farmers in the sector so you understand what your carbon footprint means in terms of what you're trying to do and provides you with opportunities to reduce emissions and hopefully improve your profitability. So, I mean, that, that would be my advice uh, as a starting point.
0: Thanks, Bob. And any key actions or things to get busy on from your point of view, Julian?
2: Well, Bob's laid out that, yeah, the, the fundamental thing is know where you are, so start with the carbon footprint, Um, And I think you've got, there's also time, we have got a bit more time to think to work on things. So, you know, the next two to five years, you you could be working on the sort of 10 to 15% savings that are are potentially going to bring you cost benefits. While it becomes clear what sort of, whether it's government support or industry market payments and things, are going to start funding those greater potential savings going forward uh, and also start trying things out, you know, it doesn't cost much to, to put in a few acres of a different sort of drill uh, combination or different crop mix or, you know, start tinkering around um, with different systems and different approaches uh, because they don't cost very much. And you you want to start learning now as to how they're going to help both potentially cut emissions, but also improve resilience. And I don't think anyone should should waste uh, any time uh, because we will have to change. and. You know we've still got some chances to to, to learn and make those changes.
1: One, one final thought I mean we've been watching the increase in gas prices recently uh, concerned about household electricity bills but actually there's going to be a big impact on farming through the increase in the cost of nitrogen fertiliser coming through next year so it kind of takes us back to the earlier point in the discussion of the importance of getting more out of the nitrogen that we use in farms um, it's going to be a huge increase in fixed costs coming in, in the next few months. And we really need to to look at that both from a climate change perspective, but also in terms of farm economics.
0: Bob, thanks. Yeah, that's a, a really key point to, to finish on. So thank you both very much. It's a, a complex area and it touches everything. So um, that was a good run through just now uh, and thank you to everyone who's listened into to this CropCast. Um, I hope you'll listen out for others in the series. Um, we'll be talking about integrated pest management and also um, trial results from this year. So thank you.